we just love it. There's just something about hospitality, you know, that you just, it's in our blood. Like we grew up being taught from such a young age about how to be hospitable. And so it doesn't matter how you felt, if your mum just yelled at you, if you just got into trouble, if you just had a fight, etc. As soon as someone walked into that door, the front door of our house, you had to be friendly, you had to be hospitable. And that's what we were taught to do. And so for us, it's kind of like, this is what we know more than anything else, you know. At the moment on Dirty Linen, we are talking about the future. How are things tracking for hospitality businesses around the country as they survey a landscape without JobKeeper, without rent abatements and without some of the other government supports that some businesses have needed to rely on in this super tricky past year? We are heading to Sydney today and I am absolutely thrilled to be chatting to Sharon Saloom, who owns Almond Bar with her sister Carol in Sydney, in inner Sydney, Darlinghurst, and also has Three Tomatoes Cafe a little bit further west um, in Ashbury. But Sharon, you grew up even further west than that, didn't you? I sure did in a, in a little town called Granville. <laughs> tell us about Granville. Tell us what it was like growing up there and tell us about your family. Um, well, look, my with Granville, it's um, it's it's very famously known for unfortunately the train disaster, um, and then you know the next thing it's kind of been known for is, is charcoal chicken. So uh, in Granville, you know you kind of you know you're approaching Granville when you can see a heavy set of smoke above your car, and and you open your window for a bit of fresh air, but all you get is charcoal chicken. So you know you know you've kind of hit that area. Um, Granville is it's such a mixing pot a melting pot of people you know it's it's such a mishmash of people um you know a lot of people from around the middle east you know with middle eastern backgrounds and uh but we have such a mix you know i grew up with a lot of filipino guys and um you know different kinds of asians and stuff like that and um you know europeans there was such a mix of people when i was growing up and and it was such a great place to kind of grow up and as for my family, you know, they're all kind of located around Granville and the surrounding suburbs. Um, you know, everyone's within about 10 to 15 minutes away, so everyone's really, really close, uh, which means that, you know, when my sister and I kind of moved out of the area, my parents kind of struggled to come to us because we're a little bit further away than 15 minutes, so it's too much of a trip for them, you know. <laughs> so it's, we're often going back there to see them. Um, you know, we have family dinner every week. Uh, which we, we make sure we all kind of come to and, and it's quite nice to, to do that. But, yeah, lo- lots of family around. My parents are actually one of nine children on each side. So I have a span of 16 aunties and uncles, most of whom are actually still in Syria. Uh, but we do have quite a few that have kind of come over the years to Australia, uh, one in Melbourne. Actually, we have a lot of family and friends in Melbourne. Um, and then, yeah, we've, we've got them kind of spread out. I've got a brother in Brisbane Etc. So we're all over the place, really, with 16 mm. aunties and uncles. That's that's to be expected as well. Yeah, that is yeah. a big family. And so, um, yeah, I just love this image of you growing up in this charcoal chicken fog. And, um, you know, Syrian culture, you know, Middle Eastern culture generally, it, it is so much around eating together and about sharing food and 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 especially I guess cook food that's cooked over fire can you tell us a bit about some of those those backyard barbecues that were part of your life growing up and and indeed still are yeah look the family barbecue is is such a big thing for us you know like a lot of people will say oh you know what are you doing for Christmas or what are you doing for Easter and ours is always a big barbecue so we 
you know, uh, Christmas Eve, we have, it's normally at my parents' house and, um, you know, all the family comes over, the extended family comes over uh, and we have, you know, a really big barbecue together. And I'm talking, you know, like massive amount of food. Like you could, The average person couldn't comprehend the amount of, of food you would have to have, to, you know, feed us. We're all big eaters, um, as you can imagine, you know. So, it's, um, you know, it's, it's quite a big, raucous affair. Um, and so everyone's kind of involved in some way. You know, my aunties come and help mum a couple of days beforehand, uh, you know, so it kind of starts a week ahead with things like, you know, smoking eggplant for Baba Ganoj and getting chickpeas ready for hummus and, you know, marinating meats two, di- two days in advance. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's quite big. And then you have, you know, aunties that will bring desserts and then, you know, and then we have the, the males will often cook the barbecue. Uh, but over the years, I've kind of tried to take over the reins in that way, mostly to kind of honour the food, you know, and the preparations that are involved because you just find that, that males, you know, spend so much time, the males in my family spend so much time kind of socialising with one another, overcooking the barbecue. It's kind of like the, the food's forgotten, you know, <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll nibble as they go along. And it's, you know, whereas I was just like, no, you know, this is a bit overcooked or such and such. So, you know, I was the annoying one that eventually just went, hey, move aside, I'll do it. Um, you know, continue to socialize. You guys can continue to socialize and pick it whatever you want. But, you know, I just want to make sure that it's it's perfect. Was everyone. that a tricky thing, uh, you know, as a as a young woman coming into this uh, arena that was quite male dominated? Um, was that tricky for you to elbow your way in? You know, were there were there words spoken? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it's, it's really hard. Like it's sometimes still a fight, you know, still an argument and um, you know, it's, it was something big that I kind of, yeah, had to kind of wriggle into. And, and so is, you know, like even us opening a business as two females in our, in our family, in our cultural background was unheard of. You know, I spoke to someone from ABC a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were talking about, you know, family and, and food and stuff and opening the businesses. And I said, you know, that it was just such a, it, it was a challenge, you know, because you had to prove yourself not just as someone opening a business in the hospitality industry, but as a female opening a business in the hospitality industry, not just in our industry, but in our cultural background as well as a female in our industry and, you know, how we grew up and and being from Middle Eastern background, it's quite hard to, you know, prove people wrong, that you can be successful, that you can achieve things, um, you know, that people kind of assume that you may not be able to. So, yeah. Mm. And your partner is a woman and she's having a baby or you're having a baby. I mean, that's also not quite um, traditional in in a Syrian family, I would I would assume. So how is that all that um, sort of going down? No, look, it's absolutely not. You know, it's um, I'm I'm also very always big on saying, you know, you kind of get into this habit of saying we're having a baby. Now I'm like, I'm not having the baby. She's the one doing all the work. You know, like, she's so, <laughs> like you know, no, I really feel empathise with, with pregnant women. It's it's a big process. Um. You know, it's it's been it's a learning curve, definitely, as we go along. But your family amazes you sometimes, and um, and I have to say that I'm I'm definitely one of the lucky, blessed ones in this case. Um, you know, definitely not traditional. It's definitely not something you know that I would I would kind of yeah just share with everyone. And you know, and I've always just been yeah kind of protective of my family in in that way of you know kind of respecting their needs and what what works for them as well so 
um, you know, and they, they've just been pretty amazing, to be honest. Yeah. That's, that's really, really great. So uh, I think, Sharon, one of the reasons that I wanted to chat to you for this um, series about the future is that I know one of the things that's been such a feature of Almond Bar has been these big laneway parties where, you know, if you look at it through a COVID lens, it's, you know, a lot of gathering, a lot of, you know, <laughs> yeah. sharing food, a lot of rubbing elbows. Um, and I just think, I'd love you to talk about, you know, those those events and, you know, how you see that that spirit of of sharing Syrian cuisine in in a COVID landscape. Uh, look, it, it was for us. It was it was such a, you know, it was such a clear kind of idea of going, hey, you know, we love our barbecues. We want to do this in Darlinghurst, and and you know, we we spoke to the council and we kind of like tried to get around all the, you know, ifs and buts and, you know, all the things that you have to kind of do with council. Um, and what we kind of worked out was that we, you know, for us it was more just about, yeah, kind of creating this this gathering of people, like bringing people together who would not normally come together, you know. In, in, in a city, Sydney, everyone just, you know, I guess – in Sydney and in our lives in general, I think we've all we've all just kind of got into this habit of, you know, head down, bum up, just kind of really not taking notice of of a lot of things that we forget to enjoy. And one of those for us was, um, you know, kind of having a, a presence of people um, that would not normally be together to kind of come together. In regards to, you know, COVID, obviously that completely killed that idea for us because there was no way we were going to have 300 people in this tiny laneway <laughs> gathering, you know, because and obviously you don't want to be responsible for anything happening and all that kind of stuff, but it broke our hearts to kind of go, you know, how do we've got to let go of this, you know. So we normally do it twice a year um, and we have yet to, to do it since 2019, which has been a shame. At the moment, we're kind of trying to work out a way that we can do it so that it's COVID safe. Um, you know, we've only just reintroduced one of the dinners that we do um, that we'll have this Sunday that we do once a year because, uh, again, we're worried about COVID, but we've kind of reworked it in a way so that, um, you know, we could kind of still have this dinner of this traditional dish uh, so that people can be present for that. But um, as for the barbecue, yeah, we're we're still in the process of trying to sort out a way that, you know, we can kind of still have it, but make it make sure that it's safe for people to to attend. And we're following all the the regulations. I mean, the the event that you talk about on Sunday, like what sort of compromises or changes have you had to make to create a COVID safe event? Well, so this the the dinner that we're having on Sunday, Armabai is called. Um, it's it's based around the dish called Luhi. So um, Luhi is a it's a really um, you know labour intensive dish to make. Um, my parents grow the leaves in their garden, um, and they only happen to grow three months of the year. So we it's a dish that's eaten mostly in winter, but we missed it last winter completely. So normally when we serve it, we serve it like we do at home, and it's almost like a buffet style. So you have this massive pot of basmati rice and this massive pot of like this green stewed leaf um, called jute leaves um, or mluchi as we call them in Arabic. Um, and then you have three different meats and then kind of all the trimmings that come with that. So you can get up as a customer and, and serve yourself as many times as you want. We kind of explain what everything is, um, you know, and we kind of mm. had to avoid this sharing of utensils and all that kind of stuff and, mm. you know, people helping themselves. So we basically worked out a way so that we, 
the staff could actually serve customers what they wanted instead. So, you know, we've we've kind of reworked it so that we could still have it because we found that like, there was so much demand for it last year where people were asking us, you know, can you please do it? We'll book out the restaurant and et cetera, <laughs> all this kind of thing. So we were like, okay, you know, mum's just cut the crop. She's chopped it all up. Let's just do it, you know, and we'll work it out. And this is what we've done. So we're having that on Sunday. That's so great that you've been able to find a way to do it. Um, I'd love to just learn more about this leaf. What's it look like? What does it taste like? (laughs) Uh, Well, if you ask the average Arab that's grown with with it in their backyard, they'll tell you that it kind of looks like a marijuana tree. Um, So we've all got funny stories about how, you know, (laughs) police thought they were this and, you know, how this person's mum had to, you know, explain that it wasn't and et cetera. So we've all got these stories that have, <laughs> that have happened in the past. Uh, but basically it's a, it's a tall leaf that kind of grows. Um, it's probably grows up to about a, between a metre, about a metre high. Um, and it's just this beautiful green leaf that grows off these, you know, really thin stalks. Uh, again, only grows three months of the year. So it's it's called jute mallow, so J, J, um, J-U-T-E. Um, mallow leaves as well as the other other name for it um, yeah so and what we do is we pick off all the leaves we chop them up and then you basically freeze batches for all year long use um, essentially you can buy it dried uh, but there's nothing like the fresh you know out of your garden and a lot of the Arab grocers will have people who sell it to them uh, from their own gardens and then they'll sell it on to customers but you know we're, we're lucky enough to have mum and dad grow it themselves and yeah Oh, fantastic. And so do, are the people that, you know, are desperate to come and enjoy it at Almond Bar, is that mostly Syrian people who just like, we just have to have it at this time of year? Or is it, you know, people that you've drawn into your community over the years? Um, it's, it's a real mix, to be honest, because it is such a labour intensive dish to make. Like you've got to make, you know, numerous things separate to one another. It takes time, you know. Um, not a lot of people have access to the fresh leaf as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we do get a mix. We've had lots of different, you know, people from Middle Eastern um, backgrounds come in and have it, uh, you know, which has been fantastic because, you know, you kind of get that reassurance, hey, we're doing it, they enjoy it as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a, been a mix of, of customers over the years as well. Um, how connected have you felt to Syria through your life? I mean, you mentioned you've got so much family back there and, you know, I guess like, like Granville, Syria has been a place that's in the news for, you know, really sad and difficult reasons. There's been so much conflict there. Is You're connected to the, the food traditions, but do you feel like, you know, is, is Syria, you know, really, do you really feel connected to Syria as a place? Um, yeah, look, I, I absolutely do. I think as a child, when you are going to school and your mum's sending you to school with like Labni and Zatar, you know, wraps and olives and Labni for lunch and, you know, some bursik and all that, you're really embarrassed about where you came from, where your parents came from and all that kind of thing. But then as you grow um, up and you, you're an adult, you really become quite proud of where your parents came from. And you've got this culture and this heritage and it's a big makeup of who you are you know we grew up in a very traditional Syrian household my parents were strict parents you know and um you know we did none of those like fairy bread filled birthdays or anything (laughs) like that we just weren't allowed um but you know it's it's really grown a respect like for me it's kind of created a, a greater respect for our culture and, and where my parents were born and came from and, and all that kind of stuff. So I definitely feel feel a big connection to Syria as I've as I've gotten older, um, in particular since the civil war. 
Um, you know, there's just been so many stories and things that, you know, that people have kind of, you know, misinformation that's come out and stuff. So you, you, you become quite defensive, you know, like not defensive, but you're, you feel like you need to defend the country where your parents were born and, you know, explain things to people. And unfortunately, you know, people only have the media to go by, but when your family's actually there and they tell you what's happening, um, you know, it's, it's a different world and, and it's a different understanding. Like we were, I, I couldn't, unfortunately my grandmother passed away in Syria. My mum's mum, she was the only remaining grandparent I had. Um, mm. And that was during the civil war. And I, and my mum is the first of the nine children in her family. And I oh, wow. couldn't actually, yeah, we couldn't take her to the funeral or anything like that. We couldn't kind of do any of that because of the civil war. It was just too dangerous. Um, you know, but the best thing, the closest thing I could do was take my mum to Switzerland to see her sister who she hadn't seen in 14 years, um, oh, wow. who, who had fled to Germany um, as a refugee with her family. So that was, you know, the next best option. And that was, I think, you know, one of the best things I was able to do. And it was so amazing to then have that connection with an auntie that I hadn't had um, ever. And, you know, to be able to, you know, like cook with her and talk with her and, you know, all that kind of stuff that you just, yeah, you can't really just get. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. What a beautiful, I mean, a, an experience born of, of, of sadness, but what a beautiful thing to, to have. Um, yeah. All those flavor memories as well, I'm sure. Um so, Sharon, let's talk about, the, you know, the restaurants, you know, more from a business point of view and, you know, this post-COVID landscape. Can you talk about, you know, the differences that you've seen between your more inner city restaurant and your outer suburban or more suburban cafe? Do you, are you noticing big differences in those different postcodes? Yeah, absolutely. There's it, it was There was a big, big difference um, between the two. So we... Unfortunately, in the city, anyone that was kind of in the city or around the city and, and stuff was was probably affected a lot more than than people in kind of like local suburban areas. Um, and I think that was probably across the board with most states because you didn't have the same people going into work in in the city and stuff like that. So you you lost a lot of those numbers. Um, you know, Darlinghurst for some time now has changed because of you know unfortunately the lockout laws and all that kind of stuff that that's kind of taken place over the years as well. And that lost, you know, we lost a lot of kind of surrounding businesses and, and stuff during that period. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, we decided to close a couple of times. We closed the first time for about two months uh, because we just c- couldn't sustain the business on takeaway. It just was not, it's a destination restaurant. Um, it's not the kind of restaurant you get takeaway from necessarily. I mean, there's nothing wrong with our takeaway, of course, but <laughs> what I'm saying, and, and we and we tailored it so that it was takeaway friendly foods. So, um, you know, we even tried to do that and like kind of take home packs and and whatever. But yeah, we just couldn't sustain it the way it was. Um, you know, we had an amazing landlord. He's still amazing, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, our cafe kind of went towards the other spectrum. So where we've been like really blessed, had all our locals really just like really supported us and, you know, threw all their support behind us. And, you know, it was just amazing. So it was a complete turnaround. We That going to takeaway only, um, you know, was just unbelievable. Like, you know, unfortunately when this all started, I was actually stuck overseas um, and my sister <laughs> changed both business models on her own in that time. Um, you know, and I kind of came out, had to quarantine at home for two weeks. And this was literally at the, the middle of March. And, um, oh, you wow. Know, yeah. Where were then, you? I was in, in Cuba. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. I know. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, Cuba had their first two cases where we were there. So there was a lot of panic and we were like, let's just go home. And then my poor sister in between t- changing two businesses basically had to change our flights because I couldn't get hold of insurance or anyone. Um, so she did that and then we, we came back. So I came back and it was a whole new world. Um, so, yeah, but it's it's been a pretty amazing ride in a lot of ways, um, good and bad. But, you know, we we count our blessings every day and still do that we've managed to survive it you know, this long, um, given when we, we've seen so many places kind of not do that. Yeah, I mean, it it must have been, I guess, exactly a year ago that you were just in the, in the thick of those logistics and this incredibly confusing and fast-changing landscape. It's just certainly, it's just been a massive year. Yeah. What, what do you think, like, how are you feeling about the future for both businesses? What, what do you think are the, are the challenges and are there things that you would like to see from government at any level to, to help you move forward? Yeah, look, I I mean, everyone knows when you run a, a small business, the overheads are insane. You know, you, you can't even begin to explain it to someone who, you know, wants to open a small a small food business in particular. I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for other small businesses, but I, for my feeling and my understanding of running a small food business is, you know, it's just nuts, like the costs that are involved in doing that, you know. So it's really, you know, ideally, yes, tax breaks help, you know, like just kind of reducing certain things that we have to pay for, you know, like outdoor seating has helped and, you know, all that kind of stuff, all the, it's all the little things that make up running a small business is what really gets you. So you can't, I don't know if we can necessarily say, Hey, can you reduce our pay as you go tax? Hey, can you reduce this GST or can you reduce, you know, that would be nice. But at the end of the day, it's really, it's an accumulation of everything to be quite honest you know it's all the little things your bin fees your uh you know cleaning fees and your cleaning your exhaust and it, it's all the little things that come up um along the way unfortunately that people kind of forget that you're responsible for um in running a business so you know if it was if it was anything from government it would be honestly anything anything would help <laughs> and and that would be um uh, because that's what we've found over the last year that anything that we've been given has helped in some way you know it it could be the smallest of things you know like just having two extra two tables outside of Armand bar you know that's helped or um not being given grief for having those two tables outside of Armand bar that's helped um you know our landlord being understanding with the rent you know that's helped you know, it's all those those small things, you know, having some tax breaks. JobKeeper immensely has helped. And I think everyone knows that, um, you know, economically, I doubt very highly that the government will probably ever kind of have that as an ongoing thing, um, you know. But, of course, that has helped massively for us to keep staff employed. We have been one of the lucky ones where we haven't had to let go of staff, um, you know. But what we did have to do was kind of spread those hours out amongst our staff so that we didn't kind of let go of anyone. Everyone just kind of us included had their hours reduced in some way so that we could kind of keep going and have everyone employed as much as we could. JobKeeper's finishing for everybody at the end of March. Is that still something that you're relying on to, to uh, help pay your staff? Oh, absolutely. At, um, at Armabar, yes, yes. Um, you know, it's, we, it has helped us uh, pay, pay ourselves, pay our staff. 
Mm. Uh, you know, those staff who are entitled to it, you know, the most heartbreaking thing was having, so everyone knows, you know, in hospitality, we have so many staff who are not residents or who are not citizens, who are not entitled to any kind of benefits. And that's been absolutely frustrating, you know, for us. Um, and that's why we refused to get rid of anyone because we wanted to be able to create that support as much as we could. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant that you're able to do that or that you made the commitment to do that. So when JobKeeper finishes, is that going to mean changes for your business? Is it something that you're looking at with um, some concern? Uh, look, we, we, yes and no, we kind of, we're not, we kind of just, I guess for us, we're just going to see how it goes, <laughs> you know, I guess until it happens, you kind of, you know, we've, to be honest, Danny, we've we've hit a few bumps along the road over the years. Like, this is our 14th year. So in August, we hit 14 years uh, and we've seen a lot of changes. You know, we've gone through the glo- global financial crisis. We've had the lockout laws. This is COVID, you know, like it is, there's been a few things that we've kind of had to kind of go through along the way. And we've, I don't know how sometimes, but we've managed <laughs> to keep going. Um, my sister's um, an ex-maths teacher. So I think that helps a lot to have someone who's so good with numbers and kind of like working things out and, and stuff. So, you know, for us, it's, it's more about, Hey, do we have to rework things? Do we have to, you know, do we have to open more nights and etc. So these are things that we have spoken about and then we need to kind of, you know, yeah, definitely engage in if that's mm. the case. I mean, it is such an uncertain landscape, isn't it? Because I suppose, you know, there's there's what JobKeeper or any other government's concessions might mean for, for your business, but then it's also, you know, the changes that the end of JobKeeper might mean for the rest of the economy and does it mean that, you know, people who are, might be your potential customers might lose job, lose lose some work and, you know, what, what are those sort of flow-on effects? There's just so, there's so much that you can't, plan for or anticipate um and you know when you talk about all those those little things that all add up like the bin fees and the extractor fans and I suppose you know for you to be able to rattle those all off it does it does paint this picture of that you know these businesses these small family-run businesses they're really it's a really it's a week-to-week proposition in some ways or it's you know it's they're always on a bit of a knife edge where every dollar counts yep yep yeah, absolutely. And then this is, I think, what what a lot of people don't realise, you know, that like we have so many people who say, oh, I'm thinking of opening this business, et cetera. And then you kind of have to put, you don't want to be that, you know, dampener, <laughs> but you have to put perspective into place for them and say, hey, are you willing to not be paid what you're getting paid now in your job where you're working for someone else? Or are you willing to make this sacrifice? Or are you willing for it to be such a big part of your life? That basically, you know, it's the first thing you think of when you wake up and the last thing you think of when you go to sleep. Like these are all the little things that you kind of, that no one tells you, you know, that, you know, that when you open open something and, and yeah, absolutely no one knows what, what will happen after March, um, you know, and that's where we go, hey, let's let's plan to maybe do this. But at the end of the day, we kind of just have to tread carefully and, and see how it all goes really and, and just be, you know, I guess a bit more business smart. You know, like we have some ideas that we're kind of constantly, my sister and I will meet and chat about, you know, different ideas about different things that we can kind of do and push and try and et cetera. So it's, you know, as much as you go, hey, we'll save some money by doing this. We'll save some. Unfortunately, you can't always do that in business. Yes, you don't want to be silly with what you're spending, but 
at the same time, you've also got to try and be a bit more innovative and, and try and, you know, keep people engaged. And that's where, you know, that's where all of that helps too. Mm. I mean, what is it about it? I mean, it, you know, it's difficult. You have to think about every little thing all the time. But what is what drives you? Like, what brings you joy about doing it? Why do you Why do you fight hard to keep keep these businesses going? Um, because we love it. We love it. I know. I I could sit here and complain for the half an hour. You know about like, you know. <laughs> there's all these things that people don't think about, but we just love it. There's just something about hospitality, you know, that you just it's in our blood. Like we grew up being taught from such a young age about how to be hospitable, no matter what ha- is happening in your life and no matter how you feel at the time, as soon as my parents, you know, like, and anyone that kind of grew up with an ethnic background knows that you have visitors coming over all the time or you visit relatives and friends and family all the time. Um, and so, you know, a big part of our culture is to be hospitable. And so it doesn't matter how you felt, if your mum just yelled at you, if you just <laughs> got into trouble, if you just had a fight, etc. as soon as someone walked into that door, the front door of our house, you had to be friendly, you had to be hospitable. And that's what we were taught to do. And so for us, it's kind of like, this is what we know more than anything else, you know. Um, so I love food. I love working with food. I love creating food, um, you know, and dishes and seeing people's reactions to that and having, you know, creating a memory, a food memory for someone, someone saying, hey, that's the best such and such I've ever had or that's, you know, that is so good or, you know, it's such a nice feeling and that's why no matter what I think, you know, I'm going to be 100 and still want to hear people say that. (laughs) It's just just (laughs) such a nice thing to hear people say that I gave someone that feeling, you know. So it's, yeah, I, I just... I don't know. I'm I'm addicted to it. I can't can't do anything else. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god, I've got tears in my eyes. I think it's, you just <laughs> paint such a beautiful picture, and your passion is so evident. Um, and yeah, it's uh, anyone that comes through those doors is is going to feel it. And yeah, it's you do change people's lives with the experiences that you give them. And um, yeah, it's very it's meaningful and it and it's real and it, it's you know it's it's who we are as people. So yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, Sharon, can you just finish up by telling me, uh, we spoke recently about a story I was doing about barbecue and, and the grill, and I just I just love this picture that you paint of these family barbecues. Can you just talk me through the menu of one of those? Because I just love it from beginning to end. Yeah, so it's... Um... Well, it's, it's, it's quite full on. Um, okay, so there's always always has to be – I'll start with kind of like the cold items we have to have um, that accompany the barbecue. So it always has to be hummus, baba ganoush, and tabbouleh um, or fatouche, but mostly tabbouleh is the favourite. Um, and the pasta is always coming from someone's house. So there's, you know, my uncle or my mum or whatever will have lots of pasta. They bring it over. We chop it up. We make a massive bowl of tabbouleh, uh, sometimes two massive bowls. Um, Dual is a really big thing as well that we have to have with barbecues. Um, And then with the hot stuff, we normally start with some sliced marinated potatoes. Uh, We've got both chicken skewers and chicken um, pieces as well that we cook, uh, as well as lamb skewers, gufter skewers. Um, And then I think that's mostly it for the the meats. Then we do things like, you know, grilled mushrooms. Uh, I try and throw in some pomegranate corn, so it's just some grilled corn with some pomegranate uh, butter, which is a pomegranate molasses, butter, sumac, a bit of shallots and garlic in there. 
Um, and then we'll all we'll just do plain grilled butter. Uh, sorry, plain grilled corn with, with lots of butter. Um, the other things we do, are we always have kind of like a, a roasted onions as well on the skewers. So we like a bit of um, barbecued veg too. Um, and then the we always finish our barbecues. Once we've kind of eaten all of that and everyone's about to die, um, <laughs> we, we then finish often with what we call dawn bread, which we've served in the restaurant as well because uh, we love it so much ourselves. So it's just the flat bread, so the Arabic bread uh, or Middle Eastern bread, bread that we split open um, and you brush the inside part with um, dawn. Uh, so the, the garlic paste, and then we put it on the barbecue and then we kind of break that and, and eat that up after we finished the rest of the barbecue. Um, or sometimes we'll, we'll open that up, put butter on there, spread some, some melted butter on there, and then just sprinkle some sugar and cinnamon on top and have that instead. Then there's dessert as well afterwards and coffee and tea. So it's an, it's an ongoing thing. You kind of don't, <laughs> just doesn't end. Just, uh, just absolutely magnificent. I love it. Um, and I, lo- I love it that it's sort of like it relates to the fire, you know, like you've got this fire that's, you know, you build the fire and then as the fire goes down, you know, the thing, different things go on it with the, you know, that last thing with the bread on the coals. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's just, I just, yeah. It just tells such a story. Um, Sharon, thank you so much for spending the time with us today, sharing your your story, who you are, where you're at and where the businesses are going. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks thanks to my dog as well for thanking you, <laughs> thanking you heartily as well. Thanks, puppy. <laughs> This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.